0: The UK Investor Magazine podcast is brought to you in association with Oanda, the broker of choice for traders who want a smarter way to trade. Trade with Oanda and get one year's subscription to TradingView Pro. 76.6% of retail investor accounts lose money when trading CFDs with this provider. You should consider whether you understand how CFDs work and whether you can afford to take the high risk of losing your money. Welcome to the UK Investor Magazine podcast. The latest on shares, markets and investments now available on your Amazon Alexa. Hello and welcome to the UK Investor Magazine podcast now also available on the UK Investor Magazine mobile app. For today's podcast, we're going to be taking a deep dive into London and looking at at London as a destination for IPOs. And to do that, we're very kindly joined by the Chief Revenue Officer of Data Site, Merlin Piscatelli. Merlin, thank you very much for being with us today.
1: Thank you, Jonathan. Wonderful to be here.
0: So this is a podcast I've been looking forward to ever since we had it booked in, but As we're recording this, we've actually had some very interesting news out earlier on today from the FCA. And that's something we're going to be discussing later on in the podcast. But before we get into it, Merlin, please, would you be able to give us an introduction, first of all, to yourself and and also to DataCite, please?
1: Yes, of course. Um, My name, again, is Merlin Piscatelli. I'm the Chief Revenue Officer for Europe, Middle East and Africa for DataCite data site we are a, um, a technology that facilitates the due diligence processes uh, in the m a world and also in the ipo world so as you're getting your company ready to list on an exchange you're going to start working some 18 to 24 months in advance uh in preparing those uh the associated documents and getting all the filings ready uh and you use data to facilitate uh, the collaboration across the multiple deal teams that need to be involved in that as you're heading uh, fast and furious towards a listing. Uh, and so we're really at the front end and a really a bellwether of what's going on in the markets, because what we tend to be working on, as I mentioned, is very far in advance to what actually happens in terms of a listing or an announced deal in the M&A world. Uh, we are the market leader in providing this technology, doing over 15,000 of these transactions a year. Uh, so again, we're a leading indicator of what's going on in the marketplace.
0: Fantastic. So I think, Merlin, a good place to start now would be is to take a, a broader approach when looking at, at London, and we're going to follow on after that with more specific topics. But to start with, it would be a good idea to get a flavor from where you're sitting, Merlin, at this point in time, what do you see as the biggest influences on, on companies when looking at London as a destination for, for listing?
1: Yeah, I, I think the, the allure of London is still there, right? It is a financial capital of the world. You know, call it number one, number two, number three, depending on you know, what lens you're looking through. Um, so it is still an extremely attractive financial center, uh, and I think the markets here are extremely—they uh, they, are—they are truly attractive. We now have a—if you look at a general flow of IPOs across the globe, we've definitely seen that not. Be as attractive as it has been in, say, the past couple of years, and we do see that as a, you know, a cyclical flow uh, over the 17 years that I've been in the industry and been in London. You you, you see those cyclical flows, but I think it's a little unique right now uh, in the sense of coming out of the pandemic. And uh, what we've seen this year is you you just really just seen a lack of IPOs coming to the London market. You still see a number of them if you look at 299. Global IPOs. You see a, a fair number, uh, a fair amount of capital raised in those IPOs. So good companies that are built to go public are still going public. You have a volatile backdrop of of a market that has been volatile, and nobody likes to go public when it's uh, in, in volatile markets. You don't want to catch it on a downdraft. You don't want to catch it on the wrong day, wrong week. Uh, you could be penalized for that. Uh, but when you think about London and the fact that there's only been four IPOs in the first quarter and only raising 81 million pounds, um, seems like it's really we've hit the bottom of a of an IPO cycle as it relates to uh, to London.
0: So yes, indeed, I think IPOs in London are down about 40% since 2008. And we're going to be discussing that a bit later on. In in the podcast and how some of these proposals today from the FCA look to to fix that, but of course in the headlines very recently Merlin has been arm oh, holdings. Of course, used to be a, a London listed companies uh, before it was taken private, and you know the, the plans now are for them to to list in the United States. I mean, how much of a blow was that for for London, and do you think that? has something to do with what we saw this morning from from the FCI and the proposals they're putting out
1: there. 100%. I think it's a huge blow for London. Um, you know, it really starts at the root, the, the core, the core uh, foundation of innovation engine, you call it the, you know, the tech roundabout here. These are, in, not that they're in the tech roundabout, they're actually located outside of that. But They are one of those companies that everybody has been tracking and watching for a number of years and and really felt it was a a London homegrown uh, opportunity and company that should be really listed on a London exchange. And, you know, there's been a lot of time and effort put in by politicians and others to try to get that listing here. But when you look at the dynamics of the market, are you going to maximize shareholder value and are you going to really get. Uh, the fair value for a, a company and bringing it to market. And, you know, I think that the, the exit value, if you will, uh, and the listing value that they would get in the attraction of the U.S. market is just so much greater that they really just couldn't compete. Uh, the London Stock Exchange and the London markets couldn't truly compete with that, even though they tried all efforts to do that. And I think it has a lot to do with regulation, has a lot to do with governance. Um, and it has a lot of, uh, act, you know, and it's really that access to capital and that wider, um, wider breadth of capital that you get in the U.S. And then it's also, you know, from talking to people, it's it's the access to the retail investor, which is much more prominent in the U.S. than it is in the U.K. Uh, you have a three hundred and forty million uh, population. You have, uh, you know, investors ranging from all sizes. Um, in the US. And, and it just does. It seems to be much more concentrated here. And so when I talk to clients like Arm, they look at that market as just much more attractive than, than London at this stage.
0: So, you know, when you're speaking to companies, Merlin, over the last few years, I mean, it'd be good to get a, a flavor of some of the companies that you've been speaking to, apart from Arm, that have actually decided to list elsewhere. Uh, instead of instead of London, so be good to get an, an idea of the type of of companies and some of the some of the reasons why I know you've outlined some of them there, but those specific companies have actually chosen to go elsewhere. Yeah, I wouldn't want to name
1: um, specific companies. I mean, arms in the public mo- uh, domain and it's announced, uh, but I wouldn't want to um, because we've had London successes. Well. I think it's sometimes it's hard to call a success or a failure right because the if you look at the ipos that happened in a hot market call it 2022 you still had over 50 percent of those ipos that went public that were trading at the end of last year below um, their listing price so you know yes you had a lot of them that got off the ground and were successful listings but they didn't actually perform well uh, as a public company and then you have things like our, our companies like the THG, the Hutt Group, THG, uh, that also had uh, kind of a and still are, are having a bit of a rough go as a public company where the, they're caught up in the volatility and the challenge of being a public company and reporting quarterly uh, to your investor base and, and having that institutional pressure, pressure that's there. So I think a number of those things are impacting the um the attractiveness of an IPO, let's be honest, uh, you know, is it attractive to be a public company? Uh, Are all companies aren't built to be public companies. They're not built to be reporting quarterly and to have that public scrutiny on them on a quarterly basis. Sometimes you have very cyclical earnings um, that, you know, again, people are scrutinizing every move that you make, and and maybe you're not mature enough or or built up a um, a maturity in, in, in your business or the uh, diversification of your business that allows you to be public. So there's a question of, is it attractive to be a public company? Uh, the other question is, where is it attractive to be a public company and where can you, um, you know, get your best shareholder uh, value for early investors in that, in that company? And again, I don't want to mention names, but there have been many that have uh, chosen to go Uh, either the U.S. route or stay local. And that's the other problem with London, right? London used to be attractive for European um, companies. And now you see it may be more attractive to stay in Paris, to stay in Germany, to stay listed on the OMX uh, up in Stockholm. They may get more value uh, out of those exchanges than they do out of London, where London used to be the call it the international first port of call before going to the U.S.,
0: So when we're talking, Merlin, about staying private for for longer, I mean, is that a trend that you see continuing going forward? Of course, there's changes that are coming in from exchanges that want to make it more attractive to to list. But some of the issues there that you outlined about having to report to the market uh, are particularly onerous for for companies. So do you think that this notion of of companies staying privately held for, for longer is something that's going to persist and, and increase going forward? Or, or do you think if we see changes within exchanges that it may um, halt that trend?
1: Uh, I um, It's it's very interesting time for that question because if you asked that question a year ago, um, money was so cheap, private equity is so prevalent, um, and there was so much access to capital in the private markets, it obviously close to free. So uh, that was the competitive nature was it was better to stay in and you could essentially cash out and you could stay private uh, and not take on the cost of being public, but also the scrutiny of being public. I think there's change in the air. And I think that's why some exchanges are really looking at how to do this and what regulation and governance changes they can make. Because now I think you're going to enter into a, a different, era of the market where you're going to start to see more what we call dual tracks, where you're exploring potentially private sale at the same time of exploring an IPO and seeing what is the highest value that you can get. Um, If these changes by, as announced today, take place in short order, which, you know, word on the street is they're talking about the end of this calendar year. So introducing them into next year, which would be 2024, Um, If you're preparing something now, then you may be able to benefit and capitalize on those changes. Um, That would make the exchange, the the going public more of an attractive exit route for early shareholders and founders um, and um, would be attractive to potentially then further that share price. Because really, what are you doing? You're accessing capital. And so what how can you access capital? If it's attractive in the private markets, which it has been for the last so many years, the cost of that capital is very low. So as you see that cost of that capital increase in the private markets, well, then you're going to have to benchmark the cost of capital in the private markets versus the cost of being public and, you know, and what that means to uh, be publicly traded in and, and all the regulations and filings that you have to do uh, and the team that you have to build. To be able to be a public company. So I think that's a question being asked right now. I know it's a question being asked right now. And that question wasn't really asked if you think about it the last couple of years because you had so much mezzanine capital, you had so much um, late stage capital and private capital, private debt that was available to you uh, as a private company that it was a better option for you. So I think we're at the cusp of a potential change of that. And I could see the IPO markets becoming more attractive as the regulation barriers come down, but also the cost of private capital going up.
0: So Merlin, now let's look at these proposals from the, the FCA. I mean, just on the face of it, of course, you haven't had that much time to, to dissect them all. But do you feel they go far enough to make London a more attractive destination and, and competitively attractive compared to the, the lights of the United States?
1: I think they will be scrutinized in the next few, uh, few days, a <laughs> few hours. Uh, you know, I, at first glance, I don't think they're enough, um, and, and I just I, I think that we're. And I'm, I don't claim to be an expert in that uh, the regulation side of it, right? So we just work with a lot of companies that are heading in that direction. So speaking to a lot of general counsels and CFOs that are are dealing with these. Um, and talking about what is attractive and what's not. And you hear things about executive compensation. Um, you hear things about share structures that are allowed in the US that aren't allowed here. You, you The scrutiny of some of the um, governance and things like that and some of the rules that are uh, applied over here are still considered extremely um, stringent. And we had that happen before, right? With Hong Kong was looking to take uh, a lot of London's Listings and, and they loosened up some of those regulations that people had to adhere to. So people tilted towards um, a, a, a Hong Kong listing, which gave them access to uh, capital from a different, you know, region and area of the, the world. Um, so I think you know you can't all of a sudden try to level the playing field. I think you're going to have to go a step further and you know make yourself more attractive than the others because. You, you are competing against the others. And I think that's what people need to really think about is you are in a competitive world that people are competing for talent and, and everything else under the sun. So now you have to compete for these companies to come to you and and, to, and and make your market attractive for them. You can't just loosen things up from where they were and expect to be competitive. I think you got to go an extra step above that because you have to get um, – a different level of uh, attractiveness that may not be there right now. So, first glance, I don't think there are enough, uh, but it's a step in the right direction, I would say.
0: So, of course, we just covered the, the regulatory side, but now I want to address, Merlin, if we may, that the availability of capital here in in London as a as a center. I mean, from where you're sitting, how has that changed uh, over the last sort of five to ten years? And any changes that you've seen there that make it not as attractive as, as other centres, do you feel that they're reversible? Do you think there they can be something done to London as a, as a centre from the players that are here as opposed to the, to the regulatory side of things? Yeah, I mean, I don't want
1: to use the word and I don't want to get into a, a political debate, but I mean, it is um, 100% a, knock-off, a knock-on effect of, of Brexit. I mean, Even post the vote of Brexit in the years leading up to the actual implementation, uh, anything over 100 million that needed to be financed essentially had to come through London. There was no other option for uh, European deals uh, but to come through London at that ticket size. Um, You now start to see those ticket sizes being underwritten uh, and financed and invested in whatever, you know, if you're going IPO or you're you're running an M&A deal, you see those now being done out of other jurisdictions that used to just always rely on London for that. Now, part of that is you have a lot of capital that moved from London and was now accessible within the European framework, whether that is through Dublin, whether that is through Paris, Frankfurt, Stockholm. Uh, These financial centers have Increase their uh, investing power. They've increased their footprint. You have entire deal teams there that are able to originate and execute. Um, they no longer have to rely on um, London. You also see, and people don't again talk about this much, but you see the strength of the Middle East. I mean, if you look at the sheer number of IPOs, you look at what's going on in Dubai and in Riyadh. Uh, you would look at the listings there and they're having all time record highs of listing. Why access to capital in the Middle East and, and that in that access to that capital has shifted to that area. You don't need to list in London to get access to that capital. They're flush with capital in the Middle East. So you're staying more local um, there. And so that's kind of proliferating in, in, in giving London some challenges because they now, you know, they used to not really compete with other European financial centers because they were in that union. Now they are competing against those other financial centers. And then you bring the Middle East being, you know, really almost competing directly with London as a financial center um, versus, you know, being at a a rung underneath London and thinking that they would compete with more Frankfurt, Paris, Stockholm, Milan. Uh, They've now kind of almost sprung above them. As financial centers, so um, the competitive landscape again has changed, and I think London has to look to do a lot more uh, to up its game and to become relevant again. To be honest with you,
0: yes. Yeah, so yeah, that's yeah, a pretty a pretty damning assessment there of, of London. So we've obviously spoken there about the you know the, the capital um, side of things, but when you're sort of looking um, really into its place in, in Europe as as you as you mentioned there. Do do you feel that companies could be looking at, at dual listings? And obviously this is not just applicable to to Europe, but as you mentioned there, Asia, do you, do you think that you know, we could see more and more of the companies that are listed here in London looking at some of those financial centers and thinking, well, hang on, we're listed here in London, but we could be listed here in London and have another listing elsewhere and access capital there. Is that a trend that you, that you see uh, continuing going forward?
1: Well, I don't know if it's a trend. I wish it was a trend um, because I think that that could potentially keep more people on a london exchange and not have um what we're seeing now is people essentially moving their listing right that's a that's that's a big deal versus being dual listed yes there's again costs involved with dual listings but if you look at something like johannesburg and the jse it is required if you're a, a South African company to be dual listed. So there may be something in that, that if you are a UK domiciled headquarter company that you have to be listed here and then you can then dual list in other exchanges that will give you in some ways the best of both worlds with a home listing and then a secondary listing that would give you uh, potential access to other markets. Uh, so it's an interesting topic to see if there's any changes in that area from a regulator standpoint, but also just from a, um, structure of some of these deals, and if that becomes attractive, I have not seen any trends in a in dual listings. Only the ones the ones that I see are more you re- required to do that. Um, the only trend I see is the in some ways the delisting and and, and relisting in a, a more accessible market. Which again, we need to stop that trend because we need to keep some of these good companies um, you know based here and and, and listed here, uh, and then hopefully just attract more of them. Uh, and then figure out a way to seek that international investment and access those funds that may be based in Asia or in in, in the US that want to
0: uh, participate in that in that company. So to Merlin, just to finish off now, what are the three key things that you see that needs to happen here in London to make it a more attractive place to list in the future?
1: Well, it may not be listing, but I'm going to start at the grassroots of it. And I think underpinning all of this is really a lack of business incentives to drive the innovation engine uh, that is needed to sustain um, the growth of companies. And the urgency of that change is, is really needs to come from the government. Um, we have to create uh, that innovation that's going to create those companies that are going to have that, you know, that are going to be listed companies that are going to, we're going to watch them flourish and grow and become household names outside of the UK, but globally. Uh, so I, for me, it starts at the uh, the change that need to be made at the innovation investment and the business changes uh, to make London extremely attractive for businesses to be here. And that will then attract the talent that needs to be here because London is a, Great place to live. It's is still a, a you know massive financial center, but we got to work on those kind of foundational pieces. Is is number one for me. Um, I think st- then the second piece is is the regulation changes uh, that need to attract these companies and, and business, whether it's tax changes and its share structure changes. These need to happen because business have to look at it and say this is how I can I can. Comp- We're competing. We have to look at it as a competitive landscape and say, how do we compete against the U.S.? How do we compete against the Middle East? How do we compete against Hong Kong um, and other Asian uh, exchanges? And I think we just have to spend a lot of time looking at the competitive landscape and say, we need to go above and beyond what others are doing to create that attractiveness. So there's three in there, and that's really the, the competitive landscape and attractiveness. It's regulation and business changes that need to take place at the government level, and then it's grassroots and foundational investment in the innovation engine and the urgency around that to create speed and sustainable growing companies in the UK.
0: Thank you very much, Merlin. So just one final point here, you mentioned earlier on in the podcast, that, you know, simply here in the in the UK, you know the retail investor isn't as active, and and obviously there's not as many as as the United States. I mean, is that a big consideration for companies when they're looking at London?
1: I think it is. I mean, it's it's institutional at the foundational level, right? You start with your inner in, in, institutional investors that underpin any IPO or that underpin the the large shareholdings, right? And those are going to come through your funds and. Um, and everybody's, you know, USA. You have your your 401ks, and you have your ISAs, and things that are going to underpin that institutional shareholdings. But then it is, yeah, um, it's you have a population that is active investors, and I think prior to some of the volatility post the pandemic, you had a big upswing in some of these eToro's and in, in in kind of self trading without brokers, if you. You know, that's probably a different, better word for that. Uh, But, you know, you were you were essentially, you know, investing your own money and the volume in the is is not that great here. If you compare that to other markets where people are doing a lot more retail investing. So you have the institutional that are underpinning it. You have the icing on the cake, which is the retail um, that gets that engine up and going. Um, And then it's been made a lot easier for that retail investor to start doing that. Um, and now that's been with the volatility that's happened in the market, a number of that re- those retail people have been burned. So you've taken some of them out of the game. Uh, but it's in the U.S. you you're attracting people in their early 20s as they start to make some money. They're getting involved in that in, in the equity game, um, and then you have uh, obviously big funds, and a lot of that goes into that. So I. That is a big issue, I think, uh, that, again, people don't necessarily talk about, but you have a population of 68 million. How many of those are investing? How many of those are investing at a retail level? How many of those are actually trading shares and in and out of positions on a um, on a annual basis, quarterly basis? That's the volume that drives some of that attractiveness and that uh, excitement around being a a publicly listed company. And I just don't think that is um, marketed or publicized here in a way that it is in other countries.
0: That, that's great. It's very, very fascinating. Merlin, thank you very much for being with us today. Appreciate uh, the time, Jonathan. Hope you have a good rest of your day. Yes, thank you very much. Okay. And thank you very much to everyone for listening. Thank you. Thank you. This podcast was presented by Oanda, TradingView's most popular broker. Trade with Oanda and get one year subscription to TradingView Pro. of retail investor accounts lose money when trading CFDs with this provider. You should consider whether you understand how CFDs work and whether you can afford to take the high risk of losing your money. We hope you enjoyed listening to the UK Investor Magazine podcast. Please do share the podcast and we really value any reviews and comments you leave us in your chosen podcast player.